0: Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. Today's our first session in our new series uh, that I've entitled "The Changing Winds of Politics and the Sovereignty of God," but the purpose of the study is for us to better understand the relationship between God and government, and also to make a personal application of the Bible. Uh, we want to be better citizens of both kingdoms. Remember, if we are believers in Christ, we are uh, we are certainly citizens of His kingdom. Uh, we're there by the new birth. We're there by adoption. He's adopted us into his family. But we're also citizens of uh, of this nation in which we live and the various communities in which, uh, in which uh, we live as well. And so we want to be good citizens. What, what, what are our responsibilities? What is it that we're supposed to do? What is it that uh, the Bible says is the responsibility of civil government? Uh, we want to take uh take up all of that we also uh but of course the main purpose of the study is ultimately to glorify god and anytime we glorify god it should uh it should bring out humility in us it should humble us i'm reminded of that passage from first corinthians chapter 1 verse 26 and following and i'm reading from the uh English Standard Version. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and many many of us can probably quote Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it's the gift of God the fact that God saved us is not on the basis of anything that we've done but on the basis of, uh, of what he's done and on the basis of his good pleasure in calling us to himself I suppose one of the things that we ought to do is be sure that since we're talking about things uh, such as politics and talking about sovereignty, we want to be sure that we've got our definitions straight so that we're all thinking about the same thing. Uh, I put a note in uh, a definition in your outline. Politics is the art or the science concerned with gaining and holding control over a group. And in fact, we're going to explore various facets of this. Again, today we're going to be talking about uh, uh, how politics relates to the sovereignty of God, and that is that God is always in control no matter how things look, no matter how bleak, how bad, how awful it looks, and how it looks like it's the end of things. The truth is, is that God is in control in our next session we'll talk about uh, purposes of civil government and we'll we'll look uh, closely at romans chapter 13 and first peter chapter 2 and some passages from isaiah and jeremiah as well and then in our following session we'll uh, our following sessions we're going to look at various characters and see how they fit into the political process for example we're going to in our third session we'll look at absalom uh the precarious path to power and just uh examine how it how was it that he came to power and uh what happened to Absalom uh Jonah is a particularly interesting study because we're going to talk there about the danger of political idolatry and then we'll look at Habakkuk and Daniel and Zerubbabel and then finally we'll conclude our, our final session will be the importance of holding a biblical worldview Because when we talk about politics, a lot of times what we're talking about a lot of uh, various issues. Think about issues like uh, homosexual uh, marriage and abortion and uh, euthanasia and health care and gun ownership and social security and religious expression in the public square. Uh, Those are all very important issues. not just to Christians, but to uh, to any citizen of, uh, of this country, and while we will not have the uh, the opportunity to talk in depth about each one of those, the point is is that it's important to realize that uh, those issues are are very important to us, and we need to give some, give them some thought, and we need to view them through the lens of scripture. Uh, that is, when we're developing our, our, um uh, our ideas about what we should believe and what, uh, what politician we should encourage, uh, we need to look at the politician's stand on a particular, on a particular issue. What is their stand, for example, on gay marriage? What is their stand on abortion? What is their stand on these various issues? Because obviously, uh, that is what's going to make a real difference. So it's important for us to have a good, solid, uh, biblical worldview. So that will that'll be the last thing that we talk about in this particular series. But today, um, oh, and the the other definition I almost uh, almost missed it, didn't I? Uh, sovereignty simply means. Uh, uh, supremacy and power, uh, rank and authority, independent of everybody else. So when we talk about the sovereignty of God, essentially what we're saying is that God does what He wants to, when He wants to, where He wants to, how He wants to. He does it extremely well, and He does not have to explain His actions to any of us because He is the Supreme One in the universe. He is the Creator God, and He owes us no explanations for we simply are His creatures. And praise be to God uh, for that. Remember, the ultimate uh, the ultimate purpose in any Bible study is to glorify God. The old Westminster Shorter Catechism, that, that first question in there, what is the chief end of man? And the response is... Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, I suppose the place to start then is uh, how did we come to have civil government? Well, we civil government is certainly uh an institution, uh, but it's not the first institution that we find in the Bible. The first institution is that of the family. We see that formed in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And it was an ideal kind of situation until we get to Genesis chapter 3, where sin enters into the picture. Uh, as a result of that of course the fall uh the fall occurs and that's what uh, that's what sin brought about was the uh, fall the man and the woman were expelled from the garden uh and uh and there began to be lots of problems. Uh, man now would earn his bread by the sweat of his brow. woman would have difficulty in childbirth. There would be relational problems between the two. And one of the fascinating things is as you read those early chapters of Genesis, is you discover that uh, violence really began to come on the scene. Uh, obviously the thing that most people think about uh, early on is uh, Cain killing his brother Abel, uh, the first homicide in the Bible, there in uh, in Genesis chapter four. But that uh, that violence, uh, because of sin, uh, intensified and grew dramatically, and to such a point that eventually, in Genesis chapter six, God uh, decided to destroy the world. With uh, with water, and we know that there's the uh, the Bible tells us about the universal flood that's there, and of course the only people who survived that universal uh, flood were Noah and his wife and uh, his three sons and um, uh, his three daughters-in-law. So, and then the the world is uh, the world essentially is is really wiped out. Well, it is wiped out as far as human beings are concerned, except for those eight people, and then. Uh, Uh, After the flood is over, in Genesis chapter 9, and I call this to your attention in your notes, in the right-hand column of your notes, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, and this is post-flood, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. It's interesting that that's the one thing that we've done that God has commanded us to do. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life—that is, its blood. In other words, up to that point, it was sort of a veggie kind of diet, and now it includes uh, it includes meat. It says, uh, and here's uh, uh, these next two verses are really the verses that I want us to concentrate on and think about for just a minute. Verses five and six. He says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Notice, it's again, God here is speaking about the violence, particularly about homicide that goes on in the world. But he says... Now, if someone kills someone, uh, God's already promised he's not going to destroy the world with water anymore because of violence. We know that he's going to do it a different way next time if you you read the end of the book. But the the point that I want to make is in verse 6. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man not by god but by man shall his blood be shed and so here we see the inst- the the family's already been instituted here we see god instituting civil government because obviously this would lead to the formation of legal system uh, uh certainly you uh historical records we see things like the Code of Hammurabi. And, of course, when we read the Bible, we look back in the Old Testament and we see that after Moses led the children of Israel uh, out of uh, Egypt uh, and they went to Sinai they where they camped for some time, uh, they received the law and the pattern for the tabernacle. So there's this, there's this entire legal system. So God is the one who instituted civil government. And that that civil government... Uh, took place all around the world, and it's and it's not surprising that it did, because no society can survive without laws against things like stealing, and laws against certainly against murder. Uh, society just simply will not survive without those things. It's interesting that as you look in the uh, the post-flood uh, section of the Bible. Um, There's certainly no improvement in human nature as civilization advanced, uh, violence uh, increased, and so it's not surprising that God says uh, man is going to be accountable. For taking other people's lives, and so again we see this this institution of uh, of civil government of course this would uh, ultimately lead to things like judges and courts uh, you wouldn't want to make hasty decisions you'd want to be sure you had all of the facts so civil government is formed, and uh, ultimately in the final analysis it's uh it's taken the form that it has today as man has uh, has Put his mark upon it but the thing i want you to 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 note is that god is the one who instituted the family and it is god who instituted civil government the family will give an account of itself to god civil government will give an account of itself to god those of us who are leaders in the family those of us who are leaders in government situations uh we're all accountable for what we do and we're uh, and if we 're not leaders we 're accountable for the way we respond to our leaders, so that 's an important thing to keep in mind. Uh, notice uh, Roman numeral three in your uh, in your notes there and and I just want to uh, take a few minutes just to read some of these uh, passages from the scripture, which are declarations of god 's sovereignty before we be- begin to really look at a particular case issue. Of uh, of uh, government official and his relationship with God and how God used him, but there are just the Bible is replete with uh, with passages about uh, about God's sovereignty. So these are just a selected few. There are many, many, many more. Notice the first one from uh, and and all these verses that I'm reading are from the. Uh, uh, English Standard Version, with the exception uh, unless, I, unless I noted otherwise in, uh, in your notes. Notice the first passage from Proverbs chapter 21, and this one is from the uh, New International Version. He says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He, the Lord, directs it, the king's heart, like a water course wherever he pleases. A water course would be like a stream or a river. And sometimes we look at streams and rivers and we think, well, they sort of meander and they kind of go whichever way they want to go. Well, the king's heart goes the way God intends for it to go. And we're going to see that over and over. In fact, we're going to see that very thing today. Notice the passage from Daniel chapter 2. Uh, Daniel was uh, certainly very influential in the, uh, in the days of, uh, during the administration of Nebuchadnezzar during the time that the uh, uh, people of Judah, the Hebrew people, were in uh, captivity in Babylon. Uh, in Daniel chapter 2, it says, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He's the one who uh, puts a person in power. And people will say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute now. You're telling me. If if what you're saying is true, Bradshaw, then what you're saying is that when Hitler came to power and when Stalin came to power and Mao Zedong and the list could just go on and on and on, that all those people came to power and God is the one who set them up, how could that be? How could God do something like that? How could you lay that at God's feet? And yet, that's what the Bible says. Now, remember this, and we always need to go back to square one. And we, most of the time, we forget to do this. Our problem is that we are sinners. We are sinners by nature. Uh, we are sinners by the things that we do. We are not. Uh, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are by nature sinners. Now, what does God owe sinners? The only thing that God owes sinners is a one way ticket to the pit. Now, God, in His mercy, sometimes will not, uh, will in, instead elect to uh, change people's hearts and bring them to themselves and not give them what they deserve but instead treat them very graciously. That's what happens when God saves a person. So, when we look and hear about people like Hitler and uh, Stalin and folks like that, we say, well, you know, it just doesn't seem right because they deserve better than that. No, none of us deserve better than that. Uh, In fact, those are the very kinds of people that our sin does deserve. Um, One of the People that we'll be looking at in the course of this study is Habakkuk. And Habakkuk had that same question. Uh, In the day he was a contemporary of Jeremiah, things were really coming unglued. Uh, The people uh, of Judah had gone into idolatry. It was just, it was an awful, awful situation. And Habakkuk's heart was broken over all the sin and degradation that he saw going on all around him. And he asked God, he said, I don't understand it, God. He said, why don't you do something about all of this? And God's response to Habakkuk was, well, I am doing something. I'm raising up the Babylonians, and I'm going to turn them loose on you guys. And then Habakkuk responds by saying, well, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Now I've got a bigger problem, because how how can you possibly use somebody more wicked than we are to punish us? And the response of God, and subsequently Habakkuk's response, is interesting, and that's one of the things we're going to look at in a in a in a later study, as we talk about the importance of trusting God, even in the context of uh, of, of politics. But the point here is that God removes kings and He sets up kings. Notice the passage from Daniel chapter four, verse seventeen. Now, this this verse is a quotation from the lips of Nebuchadnezzar, who was a king of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. Uh, remember, God had, uh, uh, and in fact, in Daniel chapter four, God had done a tremendous work in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. He had used Daniel in Nebuchadnezzar's life uh, apparently to uh, eventually bring uh, Nebuchadnezzar to faith. But uh, early on we see Nebuchadnezzar hear about the power of God whenever uh, uh, Daniel explains to him about the multi-metallic statue there in Daniel chapter 2 and how Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold and of course rather than humbling himself before God he goes on an ego trip. And then, uh, we, uh, the next, next thing we see is that Nebuchadnezzar, uh, sees the power of God. Where after going on his ego trip, he builds this, uh, big, uh, thing apparently like an obelisk and commanding everybody to bow down and worship it. And remember, the uh, Daniel's three friends refused to do so. As a result, they were thrown into a fiery furnace. Now, remember, one of the chief, the chief deity of the Babylonians was a fire god. So this was a contest between God and the chief god of the Babylonians. And of course, the the three Hebrew guys came out. They didn't even smell like smoke when they came out of the fire. Well, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was impressed with that. But he's still uh, not to the extent that he yielded his life to the true God. And uh, Daniel warned him about that. And then one day, as we we see later, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is walking around on his roof. And he's just admiring this great Babylon. He said, isn't this great Babylon that I with my own hands have built? And all of a sudden this voice comes out of heaven and says sovereignty is removed from you today and it will not be restored until you acknowledge that it is the Most High who has given it to you. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, because of the grace of God, came to see that. And, we, and so this passage is a quotation from part of what Nebuchadnezzar has to say that Daniel has recorded in Daniel 4. And he says that the living may know, Nebuchadnezzar speaking, that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. The lowliest of men. Nebuchadnezzar was talking about himself. He came to realize his sinfulness. He came to realize how much he needed uh, the Lord. And uh, that's a that's a great verse. It's a great passage. You probably won't hear about it, uh, hear it preached very often in the uh, at the, something like the mayor's prayer breakfast, where it says he sets over it the lowliest of men, because when God puts people in those positions, he intends for those people to humble themselves before them, before Him, because all of it we we are what we are simply by the grace of God. Um. Notice the passage from Jeremiah chapter 18. Um, It says, uh, Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. To it, notice Jeremiah is just saying uh, God is going to be consistent with His character. Certainly, we uh, a great illustration of that is in Jonah, where Jonah, remember, he goes and preaches to the Ninevites, and uh, and they, I mean they were a just terrible, terrible, terrible sinners, and uh, Jonah had his. Uh, well, we're going to talk a lot about uh, about Jonah and uh, and the struggle that was going on within him. Between his, uh, his feelings from a political standpoint and his, uh, responsibilities as a prophet. But what happened was that Nineveh turned from its evil ways. I mean, from the king on down. And what did God do? Uh, Jonah had said, you know, in, in such and such days, uh, God is just going to destroy you and they repented and what did god do god relented and god didn't destroy them now uh the real focal point is uh, is on jonah and his attitude in that and we're going to talk about that in in one of our later studies Notice also the passage from Jeremiah 27 where God is speaking and he says, It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth. And I, that is the Lord, I the Lord, give it to whomever it seems right to me. See, again, God doesn't have to explain anything. God doesn't uh, call the United Nations and say, do you all have any suggestions about who we might put in power over here? No, God puts the one in power that He wants to. God raises up some, He puts down others. That's Psalm 75. Promotion comes neither from the east nor the west nor the south. God is the judge. He sets up one, He puts down another. And then finally, here's a a great passage from... uh, from the New Testament in Acts chapter 4. And uh, the context of this is that Peter and John have been preaching in Jerusalem, and uh, the preaching in the name of Jesus, and as a result of that, uh, they were uh, taken aside by the, by the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body of the Jews. They were, uh, they were roughed up, and they were warned that they weren't to preach anymore in that name. And Peter and John were just jubilant that they were considered even worthy of, uh, of being uh, persecuted for the name of Jesus. But in this passage, Peter is praying. He is, uh, he is addressing the Lord, and he says this. He says, For truly in this city, that is in Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Herod, And Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now think about that. Think about that. Why was Herod king over Galilee at the time? Remember, Herod was not a Jew. He was an Idumean. That is, he was a descendant of Esau. That's one of the reasons the Jews hated him. But why was he king? He, was, he had been appointed king by, uh, by the Roman Senate. Why was Pontius Pilate there? Either the Roman Senate or, or Caesar himself had assigned Pontius Pilate to be there at that particular time. But in the final analysis, why were herod and pontius pilate there they were there peter says as he prays to do whatever god's hand and god's plan had predestined to take place and what had what was god's plan that had been predestined to take place well when we read revelation chapter 13 we understand that The Lord Jesus is the one who was slain from the foundation of the world. And what that tells us is that before God ever even put the first star into space, before He created the universe, He already had His plan for creating man and man's fall and the Redemption of man, and that one day God himself, the second person of the Godhead, would take on human flesh and come and live among us and uh, and die for the sins of all of these people in fact uh, there's a let 's just skip forward for just a minute on the second side of your notes in the conclusion section there's a there 's a uh, uh, quotation there from John chapter 19. Look with me for just a minute at that. This is where Jesus. Now, okay, now we've just, now we've just read that uh, the reason that Pontius Pilate was there was to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. Now, notice what Jesus says as he stands before Pilate. He's been beaten up already. This is the second or third time he stood before Pilate. And uh and notice notice what it says in John chapter 19 verses 10 and 11. So Pilate said to him, Jesus, you will not speak to me? Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And listen to Jesus answer. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Praise be to God. Now that ought to even make a Presbyterian shout right there. So the the point is, who ultimately is in control? Well, God is in control. I, I love that old verse from Proverbs chapter sixteen, verse thirty-three, uh, where it uh, I think it's the paraphrase of the the Living Bible, which is not a which is not a true version. It's just a, a, a not a true translation. It's just a paraphrase. But in the Living Bible, Proverbs 16, 33, says, Men throw the dice, but God makes the spots come up. God is in control. He is always in control. There is no molecule. There is no moment. There is no man. There is nothing that is outside of God's control. And so, our case study, and that's uh, that's what, we'll, what we're going to look at for the rest of our time, Paul, uh, is uh, has to do with uh with pharaoh um when we see the way the 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 interchange between moses and pharaoh and how god was constantly working in all of that now i think it's it's, it's probably worth our time to to think a little bit about the background before this uh confrontation between uh the gods of egypt and the the true god of the universe but just uh in Genesis 12 and 15, we see the what's known as the Abrahamic Covenant. Uh, God had called Abram out of uh, Ur of the Chaldees and brought him to the land of Canaan and made three made made three promises to uh to Abraham. He promised him three things. He said I'm going to give you land, that is a piece of real estate. I will give you offspring, that is progeny, and I will give you blessing, that is I will bless you and through you the entire world will be blessed. Well, the the land that ultimately the descendants of Abraham would receive would be Canaan and uh, that ultimately would become Israel that was important because uh, in terms of the ultimate offspring he's talking about Christ and uh, the blessing of the world is the is the sending forth of the gospel of Christ to the entire world so but so there obviously had to be a place where the Messiah was going to be born and that was obviously in the land, somewhere in the land of Canaan. And we know that uh, from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that God had said it would, that was going to uh, occur in Bethlehem. <laughs> Incidentally, there's a, there's another great illustration of, uh, of the relationship of God and civil government. Because you've got this poor couple living in Nazareth, about 85 miles or so north of uh, Bethlehem. Uh, going through some difficult times simply because uh, she's pregnant out of wedlock and uh, and yet and she's the one who's carrying the Messiah and the Bible has said that the baby's got to be born is going to be born in Bethlehem so how, how do you get how do you get this couple to make a, a late-term trip down to uh, down to Bethlehem so the baby can be born there? well what God does is he moves in the life of Caesar Augustus. Now Caesar Augustus doesn't care about a, a poor Jewish couple, uh, and the the woman carrying uh the Messiah. He didn't know anything about that, didn't care anything about that. But what he was concerned about was his tax base. And so he passes uh uh, uh an ordinance or a law or whatever you want to call it, he certainly makes a, makes a pronouncement that it's time for the world for there to be a census so he can take care of that tax base and what does it require? It requires everybody throughout that empire to go back to where their, uh, where their home folks came from in order to sign up for that census and it therefore it required that Joseph and Mary make the trip back down to Bethlehem even when she was uh, uh in a late in her late term of pregnancy that's the way God works God is in control notice so the land of Canaan got to have a place where uh Messiah will be born Promised him offspring, progeny. Uh, certainly, that takes uh, that occurs. Uh, the, the, the initial fulfillment of that would have been Isaac, uh, and then of course the nation would spring out of that. And among the uh, the children of Isaac was one Judah, and it was from Judah that ultimately the uh, Messiah would uh, would come. But uh, notice the passage from Galatians chapter 3, verses 16 and verse 29 there in in your notes. Paul comments on this, and he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring. And then Paul tells us who ultimately that offspring is, who is Christ, who is the Messiah. And then, thirteen verses later, he says, "And if you are Christ's, that is, if you if if you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise." And of course, he promised him not only land and offspring, but also blessing. And he also talks about that in Galatians chapter 3 verses 13 and 14 where Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, notice this is only in Christ Jesus. It's not in Muhammad. It's not in Buddha. It's not in anybody else. But in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles and what is that blessing? That we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And of course that comes through the, through the proclamation of the gospel. Well later, uh, remember when God made that covenant with uh, with Abraham, uh, one of the things that he told Abraham to do, he said, okay now, Ab- Abraham, he said, what I want you to do is I want you to take some animals and you're to slaughter those animals, cut them in half, and lay those pieces uh, uh, in a parallel line with a space between them so that you can walk between them that's the way they made a covenant in other words you kill the animals you lay them down and then the two parties making the covenant in this case it would be Abraham and God normally what they would do is they would walk through the two pieces and each would make the vows that they were going to make I promise that I'll give you the land and the offspring and the blessing and the idea is as they pass between those pieces of animals, if I, those dead animals, if I don't do what I'm supposed to said I'm going to do then you have the right to do to me what's been done to these animals this, this, this is a serious serious blood covenant but uh, what happened was that after Abraham prepared the animals that uh, it just went later and later in the day, and A- Abraham spent the afternoon just keeping the the turkey vultures away from it because we all know how it is with roadkill. And so, Abraham. By the time sun starts to set, Abraham's just exhausted from keeping the keeping the vultures off the uh, off these animals that are there, and Abraham just lies down and goes sound asleep. And while he's asleep. God appears in the form of what the Scriptures call a smoking furnace. And God, only God, passed between those dead animals back and forth as He made His promises and confirmed His promises to Abraham. That's what's called a unilateral covenant. What did Abraham promise? He didn't promise anything. He was sound asleep. God said, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do, Abraham, regardless of what you do, regardless of when, what anybody else does. I'm going to do it. But in the context of making that promise, God also said this in Genesis chapter 15. He said, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring, that's the Hebrews, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, that's Egypt, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, that is, bring judgment on Egypt. And they shall come back here, that is, to the land of Canaan, in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What if God's letting out the rope on the Amorites for His own reasons in doing so. But He says, While I'm letting out the rope on these folks and getting Canaan ready, One of the things that's going to happen is your people are going to be down in Egypt and and they're going to come into a a servile, they're going to be in a servile situation. Well, we know how they got down there. Uh, Joseph was sold into slavery by his ten older brothers. Now, incidentally, there's another example of the sovereignty of God because the ten older brothers were just doing it out of hatred for Joseph. But Joseph in Genesis chapter fifty, verse twenty, said, and this is after his dad had, uh, after their dad, uh, Jacob had died. He he looked at those ten older brothers and he said, "When you did that, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good." See what happened? Joseph is sold into slavery. He's uh, at seventeen years old. He's in he's in uh, prison. He's a servant. Of uh, there in prison for 13 years. In fact, at his 11th year, uh, one of the servants of Pharaoh—well, uh, actually two of the servants of Pharaoh—got in trouble with Pharaoh and were cast in prison. And Joseph attended to them, and they both had dreams. And Joseph explained what their dreams were. And eventually, the uh, wine taster, who was one of the one of the two uh, uh, Pharaoh's uh, folks. Uh, was restored to the throne and as he started to go, not to the throne, but to the, I guess you could say the throne room to Pharaoh's presence. Um, When he started to go back, uh, Joseph told him, he said, look, when you get back, now this was after Joseph had been in prison for 11 years he said when you get back to pharaoh be sure and tell pharaoh about me i haven't done anything uh there's no reason that i'm here get me out of this place and the reason i mention that is because joseph is now 28 years old and after 11 years in prison he has no clue why he's there Now, he's been faithful to God all this time, but he has no clue. It's not until two years later when uh, Pharaoh starts having some strange dreams and nobody can make head nor tails of the dreams that the wine taster says, you know what, when I was in the doghouse a couple of years ago and you threw me in prison for a few days just to get me straightened out, there was a Hebrew man down there who told me exactly what my dreams meant. Pharaoh sends for him, and we know what happened. He's promoted. He becomes the governor or chief operations officer or whatever you want to call him over all of Egypt. And yet, after that, it says in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8 and following, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And you remember, the harder they worked them, the more they multiplied. And Pharaoh finally said, Hey, I tell you what we need to do. We just... We just need to start getting rid of these male babies. So from now on, every time a male baby's born, uh, a male Hebrew baby, you just need to uh, sacrifice it to the crocs, to the river God. Throw it out there and let the crocodiles get it. And isn't it interesting that when Moses was about three months old, that his mom, Jochebed, put him in a little basket and set him among the reeds in the place where Pharaoh's daughter would come and bathe every day. And and the older sister of that little baby stood to the side and watched to see what would happen. And Pharaoh's attendants found that basket and opened it up. And there's this little, obviously, a Hebrew baby. And she took that baby and it became her baby and it is interesting that jock was the one who got to nurse and care for the baby up until the time uh, that uh, that he was weaned so there was a real opportunity for mom and dad to have some true mom and dad amram and jock to have some uh, real input into his life but he became the uh the great prince uh in egypt and can you imagine the kind of education that he had the opportunities that he had and for 40 years, for 40 years, he served Pharaoh and then came to realize that his, uh, his life was really to be with the Hebrews. And he killed, a, he killed an Egyptian. As a result, he had to uh, flee for his life. And for the next 40 years, he took care of his father-in-law, Jethro's sheep. In the Midian desert until one day when he was about eighty years old, as he was wandering through the desert, uh, wandering out there with the sheep, not wandering, but just with the sheep in the in the in the desert area, or just finding pasture for them, uh, not much pasture in the desert, is there but anyway, as he's finding pasture for them, he noticed that there's a bush that burned. And the fascinating thing about it was not so unusual that bushes caught on fire, but that it was not consumed. And can you imagine, with his mind, he'd been trained scientifically. You know he had the best education in the world growing up in the household of Pharaoh. And he went over to see about this thing. And this voice comes out and says, Take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy. And God begins to deal with Moses reveals to moses that he is going to be the one who's going to uh, be god's instrument for leading the children of israel out of bondage and moses comes up with four or five different excuses why god needs to get somebody else and eventually god says okay we'll let your aaron be your spokesman which was Certainly, second best, cause Aaron was. Remember, he was the one who was responsible for making the golden calf later on. But that leads us to our uh, story today. And and uh, when you have the opportunity, be sure that you read Exodus chapter seven through chapter eleven, because what I, what we're going to do is just highlight some of those uh, some of those things today. But. God tells Moses that he's to go to Pharaoh and to speak to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, it's time for you to let my people go. In other words, God is about to fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham some 400 plus years earlier. Exodus chapter 7 there in your notes. I know you thought we'd never get back to them. Exodus 7 verse 2, Tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Notice what God says. He says, I want you to go tell Pharaoh you need to let my people go. Now, incidentally, Moses, um, when you go in there, Pharaoh is not going to cooperate with you. In fact, the reason he's not going to cooperate is because I'm going to actually harden his heart so that he will not cooperate. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to multiply my wonders before this is all over. Everybody everywhere in Egypt, among the Hebrews, among surrounding nations are going to be amazed at me, God is saying, because of my great power. It's interesting that in this passage, this this phrase, the hardening of the heart phrase, is used 14 times. Seven of those times it specifically says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart two of the time two of those times it says pharaoh hardened his own heart and the other five times it just simply says pharaoh's heart was hardened but that's the use of the passive voice which means something on the outside was working on that so obviously it's an inference that god was hardening his heart now remember when they when they went to to prove that he was god's man he you know Aaron threw down the staff and the staff turned into a a snake and the magicians did the same thing Uh, after that pharaoh hardened his heart, his heart remained hardened Uh, then then there was a uh, turned water into blood and for reasons I don't fully understand uh, pharaoh's magicians did exactly the same thing now why they want to do that to their own water other than just Proving that th- this is no big deal. Anybody can do this. Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. And then remember, there's a plague of frogs that came. In fact, that was the second plague, was that of frogs. And the magicians did the same thing there. It's interesting that, uh, and then came the, the, the plague of gnats. And at that point, and you see in, uh, in Exodus chapter 8, after the plague of gnats, the dust became uh, uh, gnats. It says in verse 19, Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. It's interesting that up to this point, up to the time of the third plague, that is the plague with the, with all the gnats, and we know how aggravating gnats are, All of these plagues were taking place all over Egypt, including the land of Goshen where the Hebrews lived. Now, at this point, God now begins to draw a distinction. And now the plagues only take place within the land of Egypt and uh, in the land of Goshen. Uh, The plagues did not occur until the time of the tenth plague, which was the death of the firstborn. And, of course, that's when... um, true believers were required to put the blood on the doorpost and the the lintel so that that the death angel would pass over. But as you read through this passage, just as you look at your notes and what I did, uh, I, I underlined those phrases. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh just over and over and over. But I want to point you to Exodus chapter nine, verse, uh, verse. Uh, well, we started verse thirteen. Now this is this is after the seventh plague, which were the killing all these hailstones that, that fell, and remember these hailstones not only killed people and animals, but they also destroyed crops. Let me tell you what, in a period of about six to eight months, God turned Egypt into an agricultural and ecological disaster area. Notice it says, in beginning at verse 13, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. Now notice what God's saying. He said, I could have killed all of you by now, but I haven't done that. In all of this, in all of this terrible destruction, I have been merciful to you in that I haven't killed everybody. And in verse 16, and this is the passage that Paul picks up in Romans chapter 9, to apply to uh, the whole issue of salvation, and that is that, that God is sovereign in every respect, including uh, the saving of someone. But verse 16, uh, God says, "...but for this purpose..." And he's speaking to Pharaoh through Moses. "...but for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show you My power, so that My name may be proclaimed in all the earth." Now remember again, the, the, the Egyptians worshipped all kinds of animals. In fact, one of the things that they worshipped, and, and I think this is probably a, will be easier to understand. One of, the, one of the plagues that came, in fact I put it in your notes here, is plague number nine. It was a plague of darkness. Remember for three days um, in the land of Egypt. Now this was not true in the land of Goshen. But in, throughout the land of Egypt, you could even see your hand in front of your face. For three days it was so dark. Now remember, one of the gods of the Egyptians was the god Ra. He was the sun god. In fact, Pharaoh was considered to be an incarnation of the sun god Ra. And of course, Pharaoh's son, who was subsequently going to die with the death of all the firstborn, he was the heir apparent. So what you've got here is a contest between God and the, uh, and the pantheon of, uh, of Egypt. And of course, God is just laying it all waste here. And uh, so remember what happened after the, uh, the, the death of the firstborn? Pharaoh says, just get out. Get out, take everything with you and get out. And uh, in verse 14, 14, I'm sorry in Exodus chapter 14 beginning at verse 5 it says when the king of Pharaoh was told that the people had fled the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people now why was it changed is because God changed their mind what does God God said he was going to do that and they said what is this that we've done that we've let Israel go from serving us so he made ready his chariot and took his army with him in verse 8. Look out! Here it is again, and the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. And remember, they get to the uh, to the to the Red Sea, and uh, they've got so they've got the sea on one side, and they've got Pharaoh and his army on the other side, after after them, behind them, and uh, it. Uh, in verse 10, it says, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Notice that they people of great faith, aren't they? reminds us of us. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. Just shut up. God is in control. So what do we conclude from all of this? Well, certainly through this process, God reveals Himself to the Egyptians. Uh, He provided a testimony to the Hebrews. Incidentally, remember, after Moses died and Joshua led the children of Israel into the uh, land of Canaan, and they were going to fight for the next twelve, fifteen years or so, taking the land of Canaan, just a portion at a time. Uh, from time to time, they would hear from the residents, "Oh, we, uh, the reason that we are surrendering, that we we don't want to fight you, because we heard what your God did to the Egyptians, and that's why he did it." So God provided a real testimony for. Uh, the Hebrews about himself but ultimately what God did was he provided for his own glory so what do we conclude from all this what, what 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 should we draw from this today what's what's an application well I put a couple in your notes and I'm sure there are many more but we'll close with these and uh, let's just look at them together Almighty Creator God's dominion over his creation is total Civil governments rise and fall at the pleasure of the one who created and sustains the universe. Notice the passage, we've already read the one from John 19, but look at the one from Isaiah 14. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so it shall be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who can annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? Who indeed? Nobody can turn it back. God is in control. And again, why isn't it interesting when you when, again when we think about that passage where where Jesus said uh, just below that in John 19, Jesus answered Pilate, "You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above." Why, why was Pilate there? Pilate was there, as, as far as the Roman government was concerned, Pilate was there to administer justice. Did he give justice to Jesus? No. He knew Jesus was innocent of the charges, and yet he washed his hands in the whole affair and let them crucify Jesus, condemned Jesus to be crucified to death. And Jesus was warning Pilate, you are going to give an account. For you are one who was sent by your superiors. Now you're here because my father's put you here. But you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to administer justice. And you're not administering justice. And then finally, Christ will return and will rule with justice and righteousness over all the nations. So, whatever happens politically, there is no reason for us to despair. God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And a lot of us pray that prayer every Sunday. But we're not sure about what we're praying. But the truth is, is that God really is in control. Now, does that mean that we just sit on our backsides and say, Well, God's in control. He's going to do what He wants to do. Let's just sit back and see what happens doesn't mean that at all we do have responsibilities to fulfill you and I have warnings that we need to heed and that's what we're going to be talking about in the weeks to come and next next time we'll talk about the purposes of civil government and our responsibilities toward civil government what, what is it that we're supposed to do is there ever a time that civil disobedience is uh, is the right thing to do? Is is civil disobedience ever something that essentially we are commanded to do? And some of you may be surprised by the answers. Let's. Uh... You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Right to Focus on Truth. Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.